we are blessed with, not only here in Canada, but within our faith, amen, uh, that we know Jesus. If you are here tonight and you know Jesus, you are blessed, amen. period, right? doesn't matter what your economic situation is, it doesn't matter what, you know, we go through stuff, but whatever the stuff we go through, if you know Jesus, you are blessed, because it's in Him that we find all the answers to life and the direction we need and the strength we need to move forward for all the things that this life would try to, uh, you know, go up against us. So I'm excited tonight to preach the Word. We had a very awesome morning here at uh, Living Stones, and uh, I think, you know, I know many of you, most of you, if you don't know me, my name is Darren, I am on staff, I'm one of the pastors here, and I have to make that disclaimer because I had uh, a, a dear couple last week who hasn't seen me in a while, I've been down in the kids' wing for the last five months, most Sundays, I've been helping out in the kids' wing, and so they haven't seen me in five months, and uh, they, just, they just thought I wasn't even a pastor here anymore, and we ran like, oh man, we're so sad you're not a pastor here anymore, I'm like, no, I'm still a pastor here, I'm still here, they haven't kicked me out yet, I'm still here, and... Uh, and so anyways, I, just, I am on staff, I am the Minister of Christian Education, I used to do Jake's job up here, and leading the music, and uh, Jake kicked me out, no he didn't kick me out of the job. Um, we actually, as a, as a leadership team at the church, we recognize God's calling on his life, and, uh, and he's been well trained and, and, and prepared to do it, so recognizing what God has called him to do. You know, I said to Pastor Paul, though we really need to consider hiring this guy, and don't worry about me, we'll figure out what to do with me, God will figure out what to do with me, and so to make a long story short, Jake came on board, he's been leading the worship ministry, and then Paul asked me, Pastor Paul said, would you, well, we've had a little uh, transition and, and some things happening in our kids' ministry, would you at least for a time uh, be willing to take that on, and the Christian education role in our church, and I said, Sure. You know, not that quick. I prayed about it. I promise you I did. And, and had some real thought about it. But after some thought and prayer and talking to my wife, you know what? We decided, we figured that God was giving us some direction uh, in which order to lead that ministry. And so, um, sorry, this mic is going to drive me nuts tonight. Um, but anyways, so we've been hanging out in the kids' wing every Sunday. We feel like God has given us a vision about how to move forward in kids' ministry. And... Um, you know, tonight we're going to be talking a little bit about identity and where we get our identity from, uh, what the culture has to say about identity, what the Bible has to say about identity, and how many know that this is actually a kind of a hot-button topic today uh, in the day and age in which we live. Uh, but we have an awesome opportunity, those of us who are involved in the children's ministry and in youth ministry, to help shape and form the identity of young people. And I know you've heard Pastor Paul and others say it, but if you really want to make a difference in people's lives, get involved in ministry to young people. Because they are more moldable than us older people. Isn't that true? The older we get, the harder it is for us to change. Amen? That's true. I'm getting there already. <laughs> um, so that's just my little plug for kids' ministry. So if you want to get involved in kids' ministry or youth ministry, come talk to me, come talk to Pastor Amy. We'd love to chat with you, and you can make a difference in the lives of young people. Now, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. And if you're too lazy to pick up that, we're going to have the Bible on the screen, so you're not getting away from the Bible tonight. Colossians chapter 2. I'm just going to steal this.
ready? We're going to read Colossians 2. We're going to read it in 3, 2, 1. Here we go. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots go down into him. And let your lives be built on him. Who's the focal point here? Him, Jesus, God, right. And then your faith will grow strong in the truth that you were taught. And you will overflow with thankfulness. Now don't let anyone capture you, and if this is your Bible, not the church Bible, you can underline this, with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking. And from the spiritual powers of this world. How many think that there's a lot of high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking and the spiritual powers of this world that we are being infiltrated with today? There's a lot of it. Rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you are also complete through your, you can underline this, union with Christ. We are complete through our union with Christ who is the head over every ruler and authority. Now, we are going to be talking about, again, identity formation, okay? And when the Bible says we are complete through your union with Christ, the reality is that who you come in union with affects your identity. When you are united with someone, you take on that identity. You share an identity. My wife and I, we've been united in marriage. The Bible says the two shall become one, and we share a common identity, if it's a godly marriage, the identity is going to, we're going to share the same goals. We're going to share the same values. We're going to share the same direction. Now, we are individuals. We are, don't have, you know, we're not clones of each other. But we share an identity. And when we have union with Christ, we need to share in the identity with, with Christ. Amen? Christ becomes the forming factor of our identity. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Let's pray. God, I thank you tonight for your spirit. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for grace tonight. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. And God, that you would truly uh, be the one who shapes us and molds us. Not the high-sounding nonsense from the world and the different things that the world would speak to us about. But God, I pray that you would be the focal point of our lives. Thank you now. For your word in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Uh, well, in his book called Who Do You Think You Are? <laughs> Mark Driscoll opens with an illustration about our identity issues. Now, if you don't like Mark Driscoll, I'm sorry. He's going to make a good point here. So bear with me, okay? And he is talking about a movie called Memento. I've seen this movie years ago. Maybe some of you have seen it. Uh, but we're just, I just want to read a little bit about Mark Drisk, what, what he's saying about this movie. It kind of illustrates the point, I think, about some of our identity uh, issues. He said, in the movie Memento, the character Leonard Shelby tries to track down his wife's killer. Complicating the search is the fact that as a result of a blow to the head by the murderer, Leonard suffers from a rare form of amnesia, a condition that makes it impossible for him to remember anything new for more than just a few minutes. Interesting. So to cope with his amnesia, Leonard creates a complicated system of notes, Polaroid photos, 
and tattoos to remember facts and to strain together evidence to find his wife's killer and exact revenge. Unfortunately, several shady characters try to manipulate Leonard's condition for their own gain. And using his amnesia against him, they tell him lies about his past and about who he is and their intentions for him. And Memento toys with the concepts of identity and truth. And as the movie progresses, doubt is cast on Leonard's version of the story. And you begin to wonder if the Leonard the movie portrays is really the true Leonard. And in one important scene, Teddy, Leonard's crooked friend, says to him, You don't know who you are anymore. Of course I do, Leonard responds. I'm Leonard Shelby. I'm from San Francisco. No, that's who you were, Teddy says. Maybe it's time you started investigating yourself. And what follows is a series of revelations about Leonard that cause him to question the identity that he's built for himself. And then he suffers a severe identity crisis that leads to the the movie's shocking ending, all because he can't remember who he is. And Driscoll sums it all up saying this, As Christians, we are a lot like Leonard. We have a condition. We are continually forgetting who we are in Christ. And fulfilling that void by placing our identity in pretty much anything else. And this leads us often to ask, as Leonard did, who am I? And the question is far-reaching, belief-revealing, life-shaping, and identity-forming. Now again, I've seen this movie years ago, and let's just say... I don't recommend it for family viewing, okay? So after the sermon tonight, uh, don't feel like you need to go and rent this movie and watch it with your kids. It's not a family uh, viewing type of movie. I believe it's a rated R movie. I don't know where and at what context I seen the movie, uh, if it was on TV or not, but just be forewarned, okay? And, uh, but this, you know, it brings into illustration, you know, and I, this is an older movie, but I do believe that one of the major cultural issues of our time is that of identity formation. A couple weekends ago, many of us stood together protesting government legislation that would diminish parental rights when it comes to our children's education. As a church, we sent a bus full of people to Edmonton, and many of you drove in your own vehicles, I did as well, to the legislative building not to protest against people who have a different view on sexual orientation or sexual identity, but rather the sneaky legislative elements that would undermine the ability of parents to be the primary source of influence in a child's identity formation, particularly the sexual identity. Okay, This is why we were there. It wasn't to protest against people who have different views than us about sexuality, but it was some of the legislative elements that gave the schools far too much power in the identity formation of our children. Who should be the the first and foremost identity former in kids? The parents, right? We we should be. They're our kids. They're my my kids are my kids. God has entrusted them to me and my wife. But of course, the heart of the issue is the hot-button topic of our day, which is sexual orientation and sexual identity. Our government in Ottawa just this past week introduced a bill to amend the criminal code to extend protections against hate speech and discrimination to people uh, who who identify themselves as transgender. And if found guilty of either discriminating or saying something hateful, which is, by the way, very uh, subjective, you could be punished up to two years in prison if this goes through, the amendment of the criminal code. 
Now, our culture tells us that all the attention from media and government on these issues is for the protection and the well-being of those who struggle with these issues. And perhaps you are here today and you agree with that. All these things are being put in place to protect people who struggle with these things. And I would say that if you agree with that today, if you hold to this, I would hope and I would say that most of us, you know, your intentions are noble. You don't want to see people hurt and mistreated unnecessarily right I think we would all agree with that that is wrong to mistreat people unnecessarily but today however I want to challenge the very foundations upon which I would say this cultural narrative is built upon I believe this is my opinion this is not the Bible take it for or leave it or whatever but I believe that this is a defining moment in our culture in our nation and in the church that the issue of identity formation will be and already is a defining line not just between the church and culture but within the church even itself now when you study history some of you guys are older than me and I wasn't around long enough you know but we we look at the sexual revolution right some of you guys remember that the 60s and the 70s all of a sudden things that were once taboo are all of a sudden okay right but even in the 60s and 70s stuff that was taboo then is now becoming not just tolerated now, but being celebrated, right? And stuff that we didn't even think of back in the 60s and 70s. You know, the Bible says, and we're going to read a little later on, that the culture, you know, inventing new ways to sin. What? Isn't there already enough ways to sin? (laughs) Do we have to invent more, right? So I think that this is actually a defining moment in our culture. Again, not just between the church and our society and our culture, but within the church itself, because there's many within the church that are actually blinded to the ways of the world. We don't see the world through the lens of Scripture, through, through God's eyes, to have a biblical worldview. Oftentimes we can get sucked into having a cultural worldview, and we don't even know what the Bible says. And so because of that, some of these issues of identity formation, I believe, has and already is. It's shocking, actually. How many churches have been divided over LBGTQ issues? Denominations have already been split. Churches have been split and divided over these issues. It's interesting. It's shocking, actually, how many. So this is not a message against our current governments because I believe that, you know what, unless you have the Spirit of God, I don't care what government you are, you know what, unless you have the Spirit of Christ dwelling within you, you can't discern these things. I don't care if you're liberal, NDP, Wild Rose, conservative, Green Party, whatever other party. Unless you have the Spirit of Christ dwelling within you, you can't discern these things. I, I don't, you know, unless you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you, I don't think you have much choice but to be swept up in the cultural viewpoints of our day. Secular humanism is the dominant religion of our day and it's shaping our culture faster than most of us even realize. I'm preparing for this message. I've been reading a number of things, and uh, one of the books I've been reading is by Timothy Keller. The book is called Preaching, Communicating Faith in an Age of Skepticism. It's a new book he came out with last, just in the past year, uh, Communicating Faith in an Age of uh, Skepticism. And he argues, amongst many things, he's talking about all the cultural narratives in which we find ourselves today. What are the major issues that people are dealing with and struggling with today uh, in our culture, in the church? What are the major narratives uh, that are before us? And he talks about a number of them, but the number one thing that he, that he says, the most fundamental narrative in our times is this of identity formation, and I agree with him. 
Uh, he says, many argue that the most fundamental of the late modern narratives is that of identity, that we must discover our deepest desires and longings and then do all that we can to realize them, regardless of constraint or opposition. Doesn't that describe exactly where we are today as a culture? I'm going to ask a question. Just follow me for a moment. Most of the, our culture today says this, and, and sometimes this can subtly creep into the church as well. Uh, the way, how do we find out who we are, right? We are encouraged by our culture, perhaps sometimes even in church, to look inwardly, right? Just look deep inside and find out who you really are. And then just live that and express that. Whatever that deep longing desire is that you have within you, that's who you are. And you need to live that out. Don't worry about what anybody else thinks. That's the true you. Go ahead and live it out. Is that not what our culture teaches us today? That's how you find yourself, right? Do you think it's always been that way? Do you think that's how identity has always been shaped? No, it hasn't. It's interesting. That's actually kind of a lie, and we're going to see that in a few minutes. Timothy Keller goes on to say, and I'm going to read a little bit from his book today, so just kind of hang with me. He says, ancient cultures and some traditional ones today believe that strong individual feelings and self-interest should be suppressed in favor of fulfilling one's duty to family and tribe. In these cultures, your self-worth came by the honor bestowed on you by the community when you sublimated your desires for its welfare. Now, Christianity put much more value on the emotions and intuitions and did not give family and society such absolute control over individuals. Uh, it taught that our feelings should be examined and our highest love and allegiance directed towards God. Western secularism, however, has reversed the ancient approach. Our identity now is discovered not outside in our duties and roles in society, but only inside in our desires and dreams. And this view, our self-worth, comes from the dignity we bestow on ourselves as we express and fulfill our desires. Regardless of what our community might say, we must be ourselves, regardless of social expectations. That's the day and age we live. You know, it's interesting how Keller points out here and other places of his book that you know, some of the roots, actually, in the individualistic culture that we live in, some of the roots you can actually find in Christianity. It's interesting, right? He says ancient cultures, you know, just to be fair, ancient cultures, it was far more about, you know, the better that you did for the whole community, you found your identity in, in the community, you know, in your family, in your tribe. And then Christianity comes on the scene and is teaching us individual responsibility before God. You know what, just because you grew up in a family that believes in God, that doesn't do really that doesn't mean you're a Christian, right? Just because your family's Christian, you have a personal relationship with God, personal responsibility before God. And of course, we need to live that out in community. The Bible teaches that, and that's important. But ultimately, is a personal relationship, me with God. And of course, like many other things, our culture has taken a good thing and brought it to the extreme and made it a bad thing, that we are not responsible to anyone else other than ourselves. Now he goes on to talk. He said, there are many severe problems, Keller is saying, with this sovereign self as a philosophy of life. To begin with, it assumes that we know what we want. That our inner desires are coherent and harmonious. Modernity, meaning modern times, tells you to discover your deepest desires and fulfill them, but our deepest desires will often be in conflict 
What? Conflict with each other, conflict with the desire for a particular relationship, and our feelings constantly shift. So an identity based on our feelings will be unstable and incoherent. Wow. So when our society is telling us, just look inward and discover who you are and live that out, my goodness, if I looked inward, I got all kinds of things going on on the inside, all kinds of different voices, all kinds of feelings and emotions. If I were to just live them out, I'd be a wreck. I'd be all over the map. Maybe it's just me, you know. I don't know if you can identify with this. We'd be a mess. Our society would be a mess. Now, he makes another interesting illustration, and follow me again here, okay? This is very interesting. Now, imagine an Anglo-Saxon warrior. Can you picture him? In Britain in 800 A.D., He has two very strong inner impulses and feelings. One is aggression. He loves to smash and kill people when they show him disrespect. No hands here if you feel that emotion. You don't have to raise your hand. Um, He loves to smash people uh, and kill people when they show him disrespect. And living in a shame and honor culture with its warrior ethic, he will actually identify with that feeling. Again, you know, the, 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 the culture he lives in. He will identify with that feeling. He will say to himself, that's me, that's who I am. I will express that. And the other feeling he has is same-sex attraction. To that he will say, that's not me. Right? I will control and suppress that impulse. Now, imagine a young man walking around in Manhattan today or in Red Deer today or anywhere else in Canada. He has the same two inward impulses, both equally strong, both difficult to control. What will he say? He will not look at the aggression and think, uh, "This is." Or sorry, he will look at the aggression and think, "This is not who I want to be." And he will seek deliverance in therapy and anger management programs. And he will look at his sexual desire, however, and conclude, "That is who I am." See the contrast. So, what does this experiment, thought experiment, show us? Primarily, it reveals that we do not get our identity simply from within. Rather, we receive some interpretive moral grid, lay it down over our various feelings and impulses, and sift them through it. This grid helps us to decide which feelings are me and should be expressed, and which are not and should not be. So this grid of interpretive beliefs, not an innate, unadulterated expression of our feelings, is what shapes our identity. Wow. Do you guys follow all that? Very interesting, isn't it? really makes us think, Right? So it's not just these inner feelings. We have all kinds of feelings. We are far more complicated. I'm far more complicated. (laughs) I think we all are. So the question is, where do we get this interpretive moral grid from? Most of us, most people, get it from the culture in which we live in. All right, The world in which we live, which we're going to talk about here today. So my question to you, and to me, and to all of us, is what has and what is continuing to shape your identity? You know, is it your family? Is it your work? Us pastors, ministry, that, hey, that's work, that's it's tough. Sexuality, some other deep inner issue, some other sin. How about God Himself? How do you view yourself? How do you define yourself? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's turn there in our Bibles, okay, if you got your Bibles. Very um, uh, awesome passage of Scripture, one of my favorites. Maybe it is for some of you as well. 
Ephesians 2. You there? Good. We're going to read it in 3, 2, 1. Here we go. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, uh, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath, but because of, uh, because of his great love for us, God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even while we were dead in transgressions. It's by, uh, by grace you've been saved. Wow, right? So none of us have anything to do really with our salvation other than receiving Jesus by faith. He's the one that's taken us from transgressions and sins. We do not scratch and claw our way out to some higher moral ground. It's by grace we have been saved. And God raised us up, it says, with Christ and seated us, uh, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, that in order, sorry, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not, uh, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Can anyone say amen to that? Amen. What a powerful scripture verse. One of my favorites. Now, this is such a, a, you know, I've read this, I don't know how many times in my life since I've been walking with God for over the years, um, and we quote it a lot because it's very powerful. One of the things, though, in this passage that I want to highlight that's actually spoken about quite often in the New Testament uh, in, in many different places. Now, I'm going to make a statement, and at first it might sound a little curious. Uh, geography determines identity. Well, what do you mean, Darren? Okay, I'll tell you what I mean. In the New Testament, and here in Ephesians chapter 2, basically it kind of lumps people into two categories. Now, again, there's lots of different peoples of the world, but the New Testament primarily puts people in two different, you know, two places. Either in the world, or in sin, in the world, and in Christ. In the world, or in Christ. This is what the New Testament talks about. And when we read it here in Ephesians 2, we actually see this. Now, this doesn't mean that if someone is in Christ that he or she will never sin. Oh, if you're in Christ, that means you will never be in sin. You'll never sin. Well, that's not the case. The Apostle Paul talks about this many times in his writings. He does not teach, neither does anywhere else in the New Testament. He doesn't teach perfectionism. Okay? We won't, we won't be sinless here on this earth. All right? But there is a distinct difference between someone who is in Christ and then someone who is in the world. Now we read it just a moment ago and I want to highlight a couple different things. And uh, there you go, in the world, okay. Uh, highlight a couple different things in Ephesians 2. We just read this. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You can underline that in your Bible. Not if it's a church Bible, but if it's your Bible, you can underline that. Okay. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. What is this saying? When you are, if you are not in Christ, you are actually dead in your transgressions and sins. You hear me? If you, I'll say it again. If you are not in Christ, the Bible says you are dead in your transgressions and sins, spiritually dead. 
Now, don't feel like I'm throwing stones or any judgment here because it says you were all used to be there, right? It says you were all there. You, that was you, right? And it goes on to say, but because of God's great love, you know, because of his grace, because of his great mercy, he's lifted us up from that, amen? So none of us can boast, the Bible says, none of us can boast we've been saved by grace through faith, not from our works, And so when, you know, if you're here today, maybe you don't know Christ, we are not on some better, higher moral standing ground because we've done so much to get there. I cannot do Christianity so good that makes me better than anyone else. We cannot do, follow the Bible and God's word and the commandments and everything else so great that that's what puts us in the right relationship with God. Uh Uh-uh, none of us can do that. Right? It's God's great mercy that we are saved. So if you're not in Christ... That means you are dead in transgressions and sins. It says, in which you used to live when you followed, you can underline this in your Bible, the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The ways of this world. The ruler of the kingdom of the air. The ruler of the kingdom of the air. What? What What is that? Who's that? Satan. We do have an enemy of our souls, friends. And when it says the ways of this world, you know, in the Bible, there's an underlining theme. When it says the world, it's not just talking about the place we live, but when it talks in this type of language, it's actually talking about a system that's been put in place by the enemy of our souls. The ways of this world. You know, Satan is real, friends, and he's put up this systematic approach in the world that we live in, that the default is to sin and mess it up. How many know that to be true? No one has to teach us how to sin. It's the default switch. So someone says, the devil made me do it. I say, well, you know what? The devil doesn't have to make me do all the bad things that I do. I just do somehow do them on my own, right? And you do too, by the way, okay? We live, you know what? This is the sin nature that's in us. We are part of this world. It's the world system that's been set up To deceive people from who God is. It's a world system. I hate being worked by the system. I don't know about you guys. You know, you ever feel like that in life? Or you you just felt like, man, the system is messing with me, right? And and maybe it's, I don't know, maybe a government system. I don't know. You know, I've had so many things and bureaucracies and dealing with things on the phone. You feel like the system is messing with me. This is not working for me, right? And the system of the world wants to mess us all up and it's been put in place by the enemy of our souls. We need to know that. And so, you know, it says you were dead in transgressions and sins when you followed the ways of this world, the ways of the system of the world. You received uh, uh, and lived out the cultural's moral grid. Remember we talked about that moral grid that we sift through our feelings and inner desires, that we find our identity. When we follow the ways of the world, that's what we're doing. We are putting the culture's moral grid over our lives and we're seeing the world through that moral grid rather than having a biblical worldview and seeing through Jesus' eyes. He said, that's who you were when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, who is the spirit now at work in those who are disobedient. So if you follow the cultural moral grid instead of God's biblical grid for your life, I would say that you are potentially walking in disobedience to God. In James 4, 4, I don't have it here. And you, just, you can just jot that down in your notes. James 4, 4, it says, adulterers, adulterers and adulteresses. Wow. 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or opposition with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. Huh. You know, it's interesting in this text, the word friend in the Greek is the word philos, is which where we get the word uh, philosophy. So you can actually better transliterate it as this. He who gets his philosophy from the system of this world has befriended the system and is now in opposition to God. Ouch. Now I know, friends, this is a heavy message tonight. Trust me, I've been living this message all week, all day. This is my third time preaching it. This is a heavy message. And there's some hard truths here. But friends, guess what? There is good news. (laughs) Amen? (laughs) This might sound very daunting, but there is some good news. 1 John 5 says, This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out His commands. In fact, this is the love for God, to keep His commands, and His commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. Amen? This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. So when we talk about this world system, it's messed up values, it's messed up morals, guess what? We are actually more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, amen? That's what the Bible tells us. So we don't have to be uh, bogged down or burdened down or depressed about the world in which we live and about the things that are coming against us, about the lies that the enemy might want to put upon you and your family. Guess what? We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Can anyone say amen? Do you guys believe that? Oh, it's quiet here. I was expecting a much louder shout of amen on that one. I must be... All right. In some of my reading here for this message, um, commentator uh, Klein Snodgrass, which is a ridiculously funny name, but anyways, um, but a very brilliant guy. I'm going to quote him here. He says, The problem for Christians is that two, uh, two overlapping realms or ages exist. Isn't this true? A new age, though a new age exists in Christ, the old age is still with us and at work. Which realm will define us? This text, in Ephesians 2, by the way, attempts to describe what was formerly true, that we were dead in transgressions and sins. What was formerly true. But for many Christians, that's actually still the reality. A break with the past has not really occurred. They are attracted to the glitz and the glitter of this world. Now one can understand that people who do not know God are stranded in a living death, but how can one comprehend Christians who have found life still turning back to death? Christians need to be much more aware that the old order still wants to define who we are. If the desires of Christians are the same of those of non-Christians, and if the desires are fulfilled in the same way, the gospel is useless. We have the same desires, but friends, we cannot achieve them in the same way. What power does the gospel have in our lives if it does not bring to us identity, fulfillment, direction, morals, all these things? What's the gospel's impact in your life? That's a great question. Is it just that you received Christ and are now saved and that's it? I would say today that the gospel should affect every aspect of our lives. Christ should be the focal point and everything else 
revolves around that focal point. Everything else is looking at that focal point, right? I'm not an interior designer, but I've been, I've been told that if you are designing a room or some area, you need to have a focal point in that room, something that when it's in there, maybe it's a wall, an accent wall, or some kind of design somewhere, a focal point of the room, that wherever you are in the room, you can see that focal point, Right? Christ needs to be the focal point that what everything going on in our lives, it all points to Christ. It all looks at Christ. It all revolves around Him. And is that you today? That's my question. Is that where you find your identity today? You say, well, I have faith in Christ. I believe that He exists, but I don't know if Jesus is my focal point. Well, friends, guess what? That is actually biblical true faith. Real faith in God, real faith in Christ is when you trust him with your life. The Bible says that even the devil believes that God exists. What good is that? But true faith means that Jesus has now become our focal point. Again, Mr. Snodgrass says it this way. We distort the very idea of faith when we fail to see that it joins us to Christ. Remember said in Colossians chapter 2, we are united with Christ, our union with Christ. We distort the very idea of faith when we fail to see that it joins us to Christ, it unites us with Him, and it affects the whole reality of our lives. The faith that many people profess is nothing more than a false and groundless hope of escaping judgment. Ouch. We do nothing to gain our salvation and life with God, but such a joining to God does or should do everything to us. Now I know this is a harsh message, but um, it's going to get better in a moment, I promise. And I love you today, friends. You know, as a pastor, I, I love you. I wouldn't be, I love the church. I love the people in the church. But some of us have been sucked in to this cultural worldview and are finding your identity not in Christ, but rather in the things of this world, and this shouldn't be. For someone who's put faith in Christ, it's the focal point of our lives. Now I want you to just listen to this text of Scripture just for a moment. I don't want you to turn there. I don't even want you to open your Bibles. I just want you to listen as I read this. It's found in the book of Romans. And as we listen, you know what, I, I, I just kind of think of the society we live in, and boy, if this was written about Canada in the 20, you know, this day, boy, wow. You could write this about us today. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship Him as God or even give Him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. We don't do that so much today, but certainly idols of people. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired, and as a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie, and so they worshipped and served the things uh, that God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. And that is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires and even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. 
Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. I'm going to just hit pause right here for a moment, okay? Because some of you guys, a few minutes ago, you just heard me talking. Again, this is scripture, not me, but it was addressing homosexual behavior. And some of you guys, as soon as you heard that, just, oh, you know, our culture celebrates this. Now, this is the Bible, but here's the thing. Loaded in there with homosexual behavior is every type of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, gossip, backstabbers, proud, insolent, boastful. We're all hooped. Hello. We all need a savior. That describes everybody in the human race at some point, you know. We are all sinners who need a Savior. We are all people who sin and need God to come and save us. It doesn't matter who we are. It goes on to say they invent new ways of sinning. Again, as if there isn't already enough ways to sin, they invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. Wow. Kids, listen up. (laughs) This is in there with all these other terrible sins. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyways. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. Again, we live in a culture that not only tolerates sin, but encourages and celebrates it. And this is what happens when societies are deceived by the system of the world. And make no mistake, God does judge people in societies. And the only hope our society has lies within me and you. What? Darren, you're putting that kind of pressure? Yeah. It lies within each one of us. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Collectively, as a church, when we stand up, and we are indeed in Christ, which we're going to talk about, in the world, but in Christ. When we are in Christ, that means Christ dwells within us. He is the focal point of our lives, and it's then and only then can we be salt and light in this world that is blinded by the darkness of the system of the world. But if we ourselves are blinded by that system and we get our thinking from it, we cannot be salt and light in this world. We have to be in Christ. He has to be the focal point. And I painted a kind of a bleak picture here tonight, but you know, I kind of wonder if maybe perhaps we need to understand the bad news before we can fully appreciate the good news. And there is good news, right? Here's the thing. We were once in the world, but now, for those of us who put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that means we are in Christ, right? The Bible says that we are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. That I was once dead in my sins and trespasses. Once I had no hope, but now I am alive, made fully alive in Christ. Because he has forgiven my sin. He has set me free. That is my standing before God. And even if I may mess up once in a while, God still looks at me as, my, as his child. And he loves me and he forgives me. And he does the same for each one of us tonight. When we are in Christ. Amen? That's who we are. That's the glorious hope that we have. Mr. Snodgrass, one more time. He says this, Our true identity is not determined 
by personal characteristics, experiences, and abilities, even though these items are important. It is determined by life in and with Jesus. He is the environment that shapes us. Paul felt this so forcefully that he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And specifically, Christ's death and resurrection are events reproduced in our lives. We die to the old world and its tyrannies of sin and self and rise to life in the Spirit. As important as imitation of Jesus is, you know the Bible says that we are to be imitators of God, right? It's as important as imitation of Jesus is, identification with Christ is much more important. Our culture will always shape us, but Jesus Christ must be our primary culture. I'm going to say that again. That's really good. I like this. Our culture will always shape us, but Jesus Christ must be our primary culture. We need to get our truth from him. We need to get our moral grid from him. We need to get our worldview from him. We need to get our purpose from him. We need to get our meaning from him. We need to get our direction from him. We need to get our satisfaction from him. We need to get our very identity from him. Amen? He is the culture that is shaping us. You know, of cultures of old, we said earlier tonight so that, uh, you know, in some ancient cultures and perhaps some today, uh, determined identity solely based on your family or tribe, the reality is that we've actually been adopted into God's family. Amen? We've been adopted. The Bible talks about this, and we are seated in heavenly places with Him, it says in Ephesians 2. And Ephesians, whoops, hello. And Ephesians 1, it says that God decided in advance to adopt us into His own family. By bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure. Wow. It's not like God is up in heaven just saying, All right, come on you rotten, dirty sinners. I suppose I'll put up with you. Come into my family. The Bible says God takes great pleasure to adopt us into his family. Every human being. Every last one of us tonight. He takes great pleasure in you and I when we come to him and say, Abba, Father. God loves you, friends, tonight. He loves each one of us. No matter what sin we may find ourselves in, no matter what situation we find ourselves in, do not let that sin, do not let your situation, do not even let your family, as good as it is or as bad as it is, define you and your identity. I challenge you tonight. Find your identity in Christ because it's only then can we really know God's will for our lives and live it out and do the things that he has planned us to do long ago? It's only when we're in him because he knows us better than we know ourselves. I believe that to be true tonight. So whatever identity you've associated with yourself in the past, whatever stigma you may think is associated with that identity, whether it be a family name or some past sin or some sin that you've taken on as an identity, we have a new identity in Christ if we are truly in him. You know, I mentioned in the second service this morning, um, Jake, you can make your way back up here, buddy, when you're ready. You know, it's interesting. One thing I've noticed over the years as a pastor and dealing with people with addictions is that sometimes, um, and I understand this, and by the way, Christians can struggle with addictions, okay? Some people don't understand that, but they can, and they do. But one of the, the traps that people fall into is that their addiction becomes their identity. 
or at least a big part of it. Addictions are real and they are powerful. But friend, if you're struggling with addiction tonight, don't take on that addiction as your identity. Put Jesus as the focal point in your life. Allow him to be you know, your identity. Allow him to shape your identity. And I, I kind of joked in the second service, and I know there's reasons for it. You know, I'm not picking on 12-step groups because they do good work, and we have them and even in our church. And I know there's reasons for it, but I have this picture in my mind when someone goes into a support group and says, hi, my name is Darren, and I'm a... And you just list the addiction that you have. And I know there's reasons for that. So I'm not picking on that. Those things are good. Okay. But part of when I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking to myself, boy, you know what? It's interesting how some, you know, I don't know, perhaps in a Christian recovery group. I don't know what we do in Celebrate Recovery here. Mark, you can maybe you know a little more, but Hi, I'm Darren, and I'm a child of God. My identity is found in Jesus, and I'm struggling with this issue. But this is not my identity. My identity is in Jesus, and because of that, I believe he has the power to help me overcome these things. And he does. Amen? When we put our identity in Christ, not our sin, not our past, not our family, not our addictions, when it's found in Christ, guess what? He has the power to help us overcome. We read it in 1 John 5, right? Who is he that overcomes the world? It's found in Jesus Christ, and we receive him by faith. When we put him as the focal point of our lives, the Bible says that we are more than overcomers. Who, where? In Christ Jesus, right? Again, when we are in Christ, we become more than overcomers. We can become victors over the systems of this world, over the sin that's crouching at our doorstep that's wanting to take us over. We know that. We're all susceptible to sin and temptation, friends. This is not a, uh, an in Christ versus the world. This is not us and them. We are all susceptible to the temptations and the sins of this world. But we need to be found victorious in Christ if we are saying we are truly in Christ, if we are believers today. I'd like us to stand tonight. We're going to close this, this service in just a moment. Why don't you stand with us? We're going to get you out of here in about three minutes and 30 seconds. You know, some of the things that we've already touched on, some general things, but some things we often base our identity on other than Christ. I can think of a few. There's perhaps a, a number more, I'm sure. Um, occupation or duties. Sometimes we very easily slip into allowing our occupation or our jobs to form our identity. Possessions material things relationships that's a big one it's a huge one sexuality ministry hello pastors right myself too <laughs> religious performance the bible calls that one pharisees by the way There's many other things that we could base identity on. But in my last exhortation to you here tonight, 
let our identity be found upon the person of Jesus with our union with Christ. Let our identity be rooted in Him. Not just, not anything else. And again, even if you come from a, you know, a, a good, God-fearing family, that's a wonderful blessing. But your identity is not even found in that. It's found in the person of Jesus. And when you put it there, you can discover God's plan and will for your life and truly live it out. So let's just bow our heads and close our eyes this evening. We're going to pray. Perhaps there's some of you tonight, you just need a bit of a recalibration. Maybe repentance. Maybe just to recalibrate. Refocus. Right? Jesus perhaps was once the focal point, but maybe that has gotten a little blurry. We need to put him back in that place of focus to be that focal point of our lives that he would truly shape our identity, not all these other things that so easily want to slip in to shape us and to mold us. Maybe you're here tonight and you just need to recalibrate your identity, to say, you know what, I'm sorry, God. My, I, I didn't even realize it was happening, but my identity started to shift in some other things. Maybe it was my relationship uh, with, my, with my spouse or my kids, and as wonderful as that is, but, but that's not even my identity. It's in you, or perhaps my, my identity started shifting to my job or to some sin or addiction, but God, I want to recalibrate tonight. I want to know that my identity is found in you. And if you just would say, you know what, Darren, I need a little recalibration. Would you pray for me tonight? I want to pray with you. And this is not throwing stones, friends, because we all have to do this from time to time. Because we are all susceptible to this. I've had to live this out this last couple weeks preparing this message. I have to internalize this before I can preach it. So I'm going to raise my hands even with you tonight. And if that's you, would you raise your hands along with me? And I'm just going to pray. Jesus, I just pray for my brothers and sisters here tonight. God, that we would truly know who we are in Christ. Lord, that we would truly understand our identity in you. Lord, that it's not to be in the world. It's not to be in our sin. It's not to be in possessions or money or our jobs or our families even. As wonderful as, hey, some of these things are good things. But God, I pray you would help us to recalibrate our focus. Lord, that you would be the focal point of our lives. Lord, that we would get our identity from you and you alone, Lord. I thank you for this. And God, I pray that you would strengthen my brothers and sisters tonight that as we live in this world that seems to be at some times going a little crazy with its values and getting a little sideways with its morals. God, I pray that we would be so full of the Spirit of Christ that we could discern the signs of the times, Lord, that we would know what you're doing, God, that we would know what the enemy is doing, and Lord, that we would stand for you, Jesus, and that our focus would be on you and not on this world. But God, that our focus would be on you so much that we could not help but to love others into your kingdom, but to be gracious towards others, Lord, to love people who are lost, because Lord, you love everybody. You came to save all of us, God. And so God, I just thank you for this tonight, and I pray that as we leave this place, that, Lord, we would just experience even a personal revival in our own hearts, Lord, as we make you the focal point of our lives once again. And I thank you for this tonight, Jesus. And we pray this in your name and for your glory.
And everyone said? Amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave tonight.